<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, from our exclusive visit to NATO headquarters to an exclusive interview with an FBI whistleblower about January 6th, we'll look at some highlights from Season 8 of Full Measure. This Sunday, June 4th, 2023, a special end of the season, Full Measure. Our final episode of year eight. Can't believe it's been that long. The traditional end of the season roundtable discussion with the full measure correspondents, Scott Thuman and Lisa Fletcher. And we go over some of our favorite stories and some of your favorite stories too from season eight. I want to tell you a few things if you really are thirsty for great, clear, off narrative reporting, original and investigative reporting that looks at topics maybe you're only getting one side of or maybe not getting anything at all about on other media and news sources, we look at those on full measure. In fact, that's our specialty. It's the kind of reporting that a lot of news outlets used to do not too long ago, but now is just so hard to come by. And I'm really proud that at full measure, we are allowed to do that by our owners, Sinclair Broadcasting, who do not come to us day-to-day, as happens at other news organizations, with all kinds of instructions and do not impart how a story has to come out or what people must or must not say in the story. A lot of you know about this because I've written about them in my books, The Smear, Stonewalled, Slanted. And I'm proud to say as managing editor of Full Measure with Cheryl Ackeson, as well as the reporter on most of the cover stories that we air, we're able to have the kind of explanations and information and opinions and views and facts that are just not allowed in so many places now. That's, in fact, one of the biggest stories we've looked at is the information manipulation, how the media landscape is so managed today and how that came to be. I hope you will watch on Sunday. I hope you'll listen to this entire podcast because at the end I have some news I think you will like to hear about. And I thought for most of the podcast today, we would spend time looking a little more in depth at some of the stories we covered. I'm sure you didn't catch all of them. One way you can binge watch and look at the cover stories from Full Measure is go to CherylAckison.com. Click the Full Measure tab and there's a way you can then click the cover stories and you can see by topic all of the stories we've tackled off narrative topics, many of them over the years, and it goes back eight years. So you want to see stories we've done with whistleblowers. You want to see stories we've done about COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines. And one of my favorite topics, the manipulation of information, the censorship industrial complex, all of that sort of thing. I guarantee you this will interest you and bring back your faith in news if you start looking at the cover stories we've covered. And it explains things very clearly and thoroughly, which I hope is a specialty of ours. 
In fact, I met someone the other day who was interested in learning more about a lot of news topics and had not been watching Full Measure. And almost everything this person asked me about, I was able to say, we did that story on Full Measure and I gave them the information that I had. But it showed me that on so many hot button topics that are important to people, we're covering them on full measure in a clear fashion and an easy to understand fashion and in a way that so many others aren't. But I think one big reason behind our success is so many in the media are not covering stories based on ideas they get by keeping their ear to the ground, listening to other Americans. Instead, they're in the echo chamber. They're getting their story ideas from each other, what the propagandists are saying online and on the news is important to people, which is often not what's really important to most people, or often some of the most impactful subjects that are not being pushed by some corporate or political agenda are ignored entirely because nobody is pushing them out to the media and the media too often isn't using its own independent judgment to see what matters most to a lot of people. We try to do all of those, the pocketbook stories that impact your financial health, the taxpayer money stories when it comes to waste, fraud, and abuse of taxpayer spending, medical-related stories that are so important, but too often shrouded in all kinds of misinformation and disinformation, even when you think you're looking at reputable sources. Well, I think what's best to do is let's look at toward the beginning of season eight and some of the original stories we covered on Full Measure and some of the little interesting tidbits or points that I think are some good takeaways from those topics that might be interesting to you today. One of the first stories that we did for this season, which began in September of 2022, was a visit to NATO headquarters in Germany. We're talking about at Ramstein Air Base in southwestern Germany. You know, there are 30 NATO members. We hear a lot about NATO, but I don't think in the media we explain too much about it. And I dare say many of us in the media don't understand much about these things that we refer to and report on. We don't bother to learn ourselves about them. And so how can we appropriately explain them to our viewers and listeners? I thought with all the talk about NATO, especially with Russia's attack inside Ukraine, that it would be interesting and informative to explain exactly what NATO is, a little bit about the history of NATO, and what its current role is when we're talking about Russia and Ukraine. And as it happens, we were the first American crew permitted into the NATO Command Center, which was designed for air operations throughout Europe, thanks to producer Daniel Steinberger for making that happen, and thanks to the NATO folks for letting us in. But I would say the most interesting takeaway for me of all this was, at the time, there was a lot of hype that Russia could be on the verge of invading the rest of Europe, that there was imminent danger. And really, when I was at NATO headquarters, there was no sense of that at all. In fact, the NATO leaders told me that they would know if that were about to happen because they have ways to monitor for movement and watch Russia and see if anything like that is about to happen. It's something that would take preparation. They would be able to see movement of troops and equipment. So they said there was virtually no concern about that at the time, even though the media was hyping a lot of that up. I will play a little brief excerpt of my interview with General Christoph Pleet, who is Deputy Chief of Staff Operations at NATO headquarters. 
when Ukraine happened, shortly before we activated this headquarters to coordinate all allied efforts in the air. In terms of defensive strategies, what are we doing? We are actually shielding at the moment against any Russian possible invasion into Russian uh, into European territory. So we are flying at the borders so-called cap missions with armed fighter aircraft. We have on ground alert 15 minutes readiness armed aircraft as well to be able to react to any situation which might arise. And we do a lot of training to keep our crews ready to be able to escalate and de-escalate as we wish for. Does Russia watch this activity that's happening kind of along that border? And is this considered something that helps keep them in check? Yes, of course. Um, we are playing deterrence. That's uh, the, the normal game uh, between between powers. So you want the opponent to understand and know that you are ready and you are able to defend your territory. So it would not make sense to defend 200, 300 kilometers behind the borders. It's quite close to the borders, but in a safe distance to the border. What was the worry in the beginning? So in the beginning, we were not quite sure what the intent of the Russians was. So we prepared to be able to escalate, de-escalate whatever the Russians were doing. We were defensive. We were in a high defensive posture. So we always had jets in the front. For the first three days, we were flying 24-7, three caps with fighter aircraft, armed fighter aircraft uh, close to the border on the eastern flank and be prepared. So if the Russians would fly into our airspace, we could defend every inch of NATO territory. What made you come to understand that is not an immediate threat? We understand that they keep a safe distance from NATO territory. They are very careful not to attack any targets which are right on the border to Poland, for example. So not to spill over the conflict into NATO territory. And we can observe that. We have a pretty good idea what the Russians are doing every second. So again, very interesting. He says that the Russians keep a safe distance from NATO territory. This was last fall, coming on a year ago in September. And he said they're very careful not to attack any targets right on the border so as to not spill the conflict over into NATO territory. And you heard him say that they have a pretty good idea of what the Russians are doing every second. I asked him what it would look like if the Russians started to appear as though they were going to take some sort of aggression beyond the Ukrainian border. And he said there, there are two ways to look at that. Number one, he said there could be a mistake of a technical nature, like a pilot or a tank commander accidentally shooting at a NATO territory. And if that happened, he says you wouldn't want to suddenly spin up as if now it was all out war on Europe. He said there would be a coordination with the Russians via the red phone, as he called it, to discuss whether this was intentional or not intentional and hopefully settle that case without uh, it being any worse than it has to be. The other scenario, one that they didn't think was close to happening, would be seeing the Russians prepare for an attack in a NATO territory, which Pleat said would need approximately 30 to 60 days to have a minimum effect on NATO forces. In other words, they would have to start gathering the Russians and showing their hand 30 to 60 days in advance if they were going to make any kind of meaningful incursion. And so we would have a heads up. Based on that, I took it to mean that anything you hear about the Russians being on the verge of doing something big or expanding into Europe, talking about beyond 
Ukraine's borders. I don't think we necessarily have to put much concern about that unless NATO has said that they've seen this sort of preparation 30 to 60 days in advance. So that was sort of good news from a comfort level. And I guess one of the other interesting things I learned about the Ukraine-Russia story and NATO had to do with the worry that Russia President Putin often cited building up to this conflict. He supposedly was worried about Ukraine potentially becoming a member of NATO. But what I learned was Ukraine doesn't even meet NATO requirements, at least it didn't at the time, unless those were to be changed. And that I learned from retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, who's an expert in such matters. And he told me in a previous Full Measure story that because of Ukraine's pre-existing border dispute with Russia, because of Ukraine's pre-existing civil unrest, he said because of rampant corruption in Ukraine and because of a debate over whether Ukraine truly is a full democracy, those things would keep it from being accepted into NATO. At least that was the status at the time. I can't say there hasn't been some change in policy or ability to do all of that, but that's how things stood. So ironically, the thing that Putin supposedly feared the most was not even close to becoming possible. And I remember Colonel Davis telling me that an alternative strategy to take would have or could have been for the president to reassure or assure Russia President Putin without appearing to provide any concession, but to assure him that there was no way Ukraine was going to be a member of NATO in the near future because it didn't meet the requirements. Davis said that part of the NATO requirements for admitting new members specifically says they have to have all their internal disputes settled, which Ukraine did not because they had a civil war going on, and they had to have their border issues settled, and Ukraine did not with Russia. It had open border issues. So those two factors alone, he said, made it where they would not qualify indefinitely as far as he could tell. All right, on to another topic. We have loved to cover stories on Full Measure about alternatives to the traditional college education and problems with the cost of college, why it's so high. We've covered stories in the past about how some very expensive colleges are spending so much money on real estate investments and administrative heavy employment that doesn't really necessarily benefit the students and all kinds of problems. Beyond affordability, we've talked about the fact that kids who graduate from college often feel they are unprepared after all of that education and the debt that they may be in, that they are unprepared to have a career that helps them make a living and pay back that debt. Well, anyway, in season eight, I did an interesting story on Amish education. I learned that in Pennsylvania Amish country where I visited, people are achieving incredible success, often off no more than an eighth grade education. And am I trying to say that we don't need more than an eighth grade education outside of the Amish community? Of course not. But I think they pose some interesting scenarios and possibilities, maybe some things we could incorporate and learn from when it comes to what's wrong with our education system. Their education is practical. It's usually shorter because it may end after eighth grade. Maybe it continues on for some until high school, but very few of them go on to get a college degree or college education. So let me play for you a bit of that story that just has so many interesting facts and points in it. 
By one recent measure, more than half of recent U.S. college graduates are unemployed or underemployed. So you might assume the young people here, with so little higher education, have an even tougher time earning a living. And yet, they don't. Mark Zook is the youngest of nine in an Amish family. So here they're manufacturing a two-story garage. All of the brothers work in the family business building horse barns, sheds, and cabins. What is your position in the company? Stolsu Structures, I'm a partner, and Horizon Structures, I'd be CEO of Horizon Structures. And how old are you? 29. How far through school did you go? Eighth grade. How common is it for someone your age or anywhere over age 20 or so to not have a job and not have some success at least trying to support themselves? In my circle, zero. I honestly don't know anyone that is looking for work that doesn't have work. At a time when many students are exiting college with a degree, giant debt, and no good job prospects, the Amish and Mennonite communities here in Pennsylvania are proving they can generate a lot of success and wealth with no college education at all. So growing up in our community, you always work from little up. So in the summertime when I wasn't in school, I'd usually be at the shop. That's pretty normal for our culture and community as a whole. You're taught work ethic from little up and you just grow up in it so you don't really know any better. Amish and Mennonite Christians came to the U.S. in the 1700s. Their beliefs center on faith, humility, discipline, work, and family. Today, they still live old-fashioned lives, sometimes without modern conveniences like electricity and cars. And though their formal education is limited, it's hard to look at the rest of the country and not think, they're onto something big here. In three decades, the cost of college in the U.S. has grown from between four and $10,000 a year to nineteen dollars to $38,000 a year. About 43 million borrowers currently owe $1.6 trillion in federal student loans, on average approaching $30,000 each. But at age 30, Sean Lapp, Calvin's son, isn't struggling with college debt or hunting for work. Raised in an Amish Mennonite household, his formal education stopped after high school. He already had about a decade of work experience under his belt and money in the bank. Um, we raise puppies as a family. He started raising puppies at age nine and, like most boys here, joined his dad for work after school. Well, here I was growing up with dad, like at a really young age, 10, 11, 12 years old. I was pulling the hose around um, for his landscaping job. As a little boy, I would have been... Yeah, even after school, coming home at 3 o'clock, Dad would pick me up some evenings and I would uh, help him work for a couple hours. And so just at a really young age, Dad taught me that work is, is important, even, even at that age, and to learn the discipline right away. So how many did you do this morning? Uh, I got five done. Today, Sean works with his dad's booming lawn care business, 3,000 customers, and is now buying his second house. So my, my first house, I was 21, and it was pretty much something that my father had said I should do as soon as I possibly can. Buy the house I, yourself. Yeah. My dad had taught me that I need to invest my money for a house. At, already at the age of like 14, 15, he was talking about it. I had about 50000 saved up 
to put down into the house. When you were 21? When I was 21, yeah. Stories like Sean's aren't the exception. This is the Shady Maple Smorgasbord restroom. Phil Weaver's dad built a small empire on his eighth grade education. So my dad had back in the day maybe 40 cows. He said, I'm not going to have 40 cows, I'm going to have 200 cows. His father's dreams grew even bigger. He opened this farm market in 1970 and through the years expanded to what's now known as Shady Maple Plaza, which includes a giant smorgasbord restaurant and banquet center. On a busy day, how many customers do you have? The biggest day was, I think it's right around 11,500 people. Weaver went to high school and then joined his dad's business rather than attending college. From a success standpoint, it's hard to imagine what college would have added. Consider how much these businesses, built on eighth grade educations, are bringing in each year. It's a 40 plus million dollar business. Combined between the different businesses, 75 to 100 million. I don't know if it's the German drive or if it's the Amish drive, but we want to sell. I mean, we work hard for it, but we appreciate it. And yeah, they like nice things too. You know, we think they drive horse and buggies, but the horse and buggies are... Twenty thousand dollars for just a horse and buggy, so they're not much cheaper than a car. And then the land in this area is expensive, so to buy land here that everybody wants is it costs a lot. One thing I wanted to know is whether this description of children working at a pretty young age with their parents, whether it's in the farm fields or going to jobs after school, whether that was making these kids miserable. Can you imagine trying to tell some kids today, some of our daughters and sons at a young age, that After school, they've got to go to work, put in some hard labor. (laughs) Well, the business people that I interviewed, at least, describe it as a really wonderful time. These boys that would traditionally go to work with their fathers after school said that was a time to spend with their dads, that they looked forward to getting out of the house with the father, spending the one-on-one time, learning to do and love work. In fact, they all described loving what they do That was really maybe a key in terms of being happy with this kind of lifestyle. They love being productive. They are taught or they learn to love work. Really interesting culture. In just a moment, we'll talk about some more of our stories from season eight of Full Measure, including a really fascinating twist that I learned about on my trip to Europe, something that impacts us here in the United States about green energy. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. During the summers, we at Full Measure 
travel and begin researching our stories and shooting our stories for the upcoming season. And last summer, one of the stories that I wanted to do had to do with going to the United Kingdom to look at a really big project they had, a modern marvel, you could call it. It would be the biggest wind farm, the biggest offshore wind farm in the world. It's called Dogger Bank Wind Farm. And it's projected to be able to produce over 5% of the UK's electricity demand. It's supposed to be complete in 2025. It's under construction in the North Sea off the northeast coast of England. So I thought that's pretty cool. Europe in general is on the leading edge of a lot of green energy initiatives. We are kind of following their footsteps. So I thought it would be interesting and important to look at green energy efforts and initiatives in Europe. Well, about the time I got over there to shoot the story, I started hearing about something unexpected. It made me do a big pivot in my thinking. All of a sudden, we were learning that Europe was on the verge of rationing power and on the cusp of energy shortages and blackouts and issuing warnings and concerns about the possibility of citizens literally freezing over the winter. The cost of energy was skyrocketing out of control. And the reasons for it have a lot to do with poor planning, uh, green energy failure, sort of failure to predict the right things as a transition to green energy was being pushed through too quickly, according to green energy advocates. As a result of all this, in Europe, by the time I got there to do my story on the wind farm and things like that, they were ramping back up on fossil fuel. And that turned out, I think, to be a bigger story. European nations were reopening shuttered coal plants. They were resuming coal mining where it had been halted. And in fact, beyond Europe, even China began adding so much new coal capacity, it was going to have more coal than the rest of the world combined. One thing that exposed all these weaknesses was the war in Ukraine. And that showed how poor the planning had been, how unrealistic some of the goals were, and how so many in Europe had come to rely on what was an unreliable partner. In fact, a child could have told him that. In fact, President Trump told them that, that they were relying on Russia. Russia was providing half of the European Union's coal and 40% of its gas. Well, after the Ukraine war, of course, Russia dramatically cut back what it was selling to the European Union. There were soaring energy prices, critically short supplies, and Europe set a target of trying to get its citizens to use 15% less gasp, and as I said, was worried about winter rationing and blackouts. Already, France and Spain had limited their air conditioning in businesses over the summer, and Germany had taken steps to ban the heating of pools, the warming of offices above a certain temperature. There were protests over the German government's handling of the whole thing. And why does all of it matter to us? Because really, as I said, we are kind of seen as following in Europe's footsteps. So the things that were happening in Europe could be seen as something that portends what could be happening here in the United States. Let's pick it up there. First, you will hear me speaking with David Cowling of the King's College University in London. Germany has certainly been uh, very active in trying to go, to, to go green. Um, but like a lot of countries that are going green, they still substantially rely upon fossil fuels. You can't suddenly go 
and change from you know 100% fossil fuel to 100% green it doesn't work like that and whilst there were abundant supplies of traditional fossil fuels and natural gas people could imagine moving in steady stages uh, towards more green energy but actually once you disrupt that system once you turn off the taps it brings home very brutally and very quickly how dependent you are the disaster unfolding in europe may foreshadow what's to come in the u.s which is following in europe's footsteps just as Europe was descending into its crisis and scrambling to dial back on clean energy, President Biden was signing the biggest climate change bill ever in the U.S., the Inflation Reduction Act. Now look. The Inflation Reduction Act invests $369 billion to take the most aggressive action ever ever, ever, ever in confronting the climate crisis and strengthening our, our economic, our energy security. It's baffling to me that the White House is not focusing on this disastrous result and saying, well, they got it wrong. We ought to rethink this. Perhaps a gas John Constable is author of Europe's Green Experiment. We caught up with him in London. What have we seen or what could the U.S. learn from Europe? Europe is much further ahead. We've spent much more. We've learned much more. Uh, or at least we could have learned a great deal, and so can you. The experiment has been disastrous, to put it no more strongly. Since around about 2008, we've spent nearly 800 billion US dollars subsidizing renewable energy. The costs have not fallen. We've not got a green industry. All we've done is increase consumer costs, dramatically increase consumer costs. We found similar analysis in Germany, where the ideal of green energy has crashed into reality according to Professor Alexander Libman. It's very difficult to master this great transition under the conditions of economic crisis and with a population which will fully suffer from possible, um, from possible energy deficit. Uh, there are simply no alternatives for gas supply on the global market. Germany and other European countries can rely upon. There is no substitute. So what happens? I don't know. Nobody knows, actually. The hope is that Putin doesn't stop gas supply. It seems like this is maybe then a turning point in a quick march forward in Europe toward climate change policies and green energy. Now is all of that having to be reconfigured? Absolutely. Uh, I think if you talk to somebody who clearly subscribes to the Green Party agenda, they would say that's exactly the moment when one needs to push forward. And that's the moment when the energy transition really has to happen. But I'm not so sure about that. So interesting. Look, I think almost everybody likes the idea of green energy, the theory of it. It's just that too often the way it's being implemented and the information that's being pushed out or released versus the true facts and the true impact that could be causing problems, economic problems, environmental problems, more harm than good in some cases. Another, I think, very impactful story that we reported on season eight of Full Measure was an exclusive interview with an FBI whistleblower. At the time, he was still a sitting FBI special agent, Stephen Friend. His story is that he got a long-term or what he thought was a long-term assignment in the FBI's Jacksonville, Florida field office working child exploitation cases. He says there's a tremendous need for this. 
more, unfortunately, more horror and more cases than they can even handle. He was interfacing with local law enforcement, which was supposedly happy to have someone from the FBI dedicated to helping with these cases. But just three months into this long-term assignment, Friends said he was reassigned to what was a higher priority, the January 6th domestic terrorism cases. By January 6th, you obviously know I mean that's the giant Washington, D.C. rally in 2021 where the masses of Trump supporters showed up challenging the election of President Biden. And this event has been so successfully controversialized, most people don't want to say the fact, which is many protesters were peaceful. That's often said about the Antifa protests, which are mostly violent. In this case, most protesters were peaceful. Many were even allowed into the Capitol as police stood by. Others did become violent, and the FBI launched really aggressive and expansive investigations, probably the most aggressive and expansive domestic investigation of our time. It's got to be up right up there, if not the top one. And Friend told me that there were some financial incentives put out there that rewarded the FBI managers if they built a lot of cases under the heading of domestic terrorism, if they could make these January 6th cases, even when it was nothing more than maybe misdemeanor trespassing, if they could build those into domestic terrorism. The stats look like we have a huge domestic terrorism problem here in the United States. There's more funding that goes into that and a lot of implications, he says. Basically, in other words, bonuses given for domestic terrorism cases being brought or January 6th cases, but not, for example, for child exploitation cases. And Stephen Friend's story becomes even more important when you look at it in the context of the alleged weaponization of the FBI and our other intel agencies and federal agencies, how many see a dual system of justice that's being used to punish those who are politically on the wrong side of certain topics or issues. So here I will play an excerpt of my interview with Stephen Friend, which explains where his thinking was as he was being assigned a role in the January 6th cases. As you started reading up and gathering facts, what were some of the thoughts that you had about the January 6th incident and the cases? I, I had sort of a mixed review. It, to me, there, there were some, some violent uh, actions by individuals that probably warranted uh, criminal prosecution. But then I also saw other cases where the individual was simply walking into the Capitol building with the permission of Capitol Police officers. And it told the FBI that very same fact and, and on occasion there was surveillance video to support it. It kind of seemed to me that it was a waste of our valuable resources to pursue even a, an interview with that individual if we had them on video not committing any crime and just walking into the Capitol building, which is their right to do as an American citizen. For Friend, things completely unraveled in August. That's when he says he declined to take part in what he considered unnecessary and heavy-handed FBI raids on multiple January 6th suspects in Florida. What did you think was so wrong about the raids? I, I felt that there was definitely a, a, um, a harder hand in the way that the arrests and the searches were going to be carried out, uh, regardless of the individual's involvement in January 6th. They had been interviewed. There had been open line of communication between the FBI and those individuals. But there are other mechanisms that I felt that were better. You know, if it was 
using surveillance to arrest an individual when he was outside his home and, and you know, identifying him on the way to work and doing an arrest there, that could be warranted. Can you arrange someone to turn themselves in through their attorney? Yes. It's a process called issuing a summons to somebody, and it's very common, especially in white-collar, uh, nonviolent crimes. For refusing to take part in the raids, Friend says he received an ultimatum, then a suspension from the FBI's Jacksonville special agent in charge, Sherry Onks. What'd she say? She said that it, it appeared to her that I'd lost faith in the agency and its leadership and that I represented a very fringe belief uh, about the events of January 6th not needing the heavy-handedness that the FBI was treating them and that the my belief that there could be potential abuses of power, that it was incumbent on me to call out as a matter of my oath of office. She said that that was a very fringe belief and that, uh, you know, I needed to do some soul searching about whether or not I wanted to have a future in the FBI. The FBI declined our interview request, but told Full Measure it investigates individuals who commit or intend to commit violence and other criminal activity that constitutes a federal crime or poses a threat to national security. We are committed to upholding the constitutional rights of all Americans and will never open an investigation based solely on First Amendment activity. I really think one of the chilling things I learned about all of this is for the past 10 years or so, people have been asking, why don't more intel agency or FBI insiders come forward and blow the whistle? And it turns out when they do, first, they usually go inside their own agency. Most whistleblowers, legitimate whistleblowers do. They're portrayed or they're being portrayed as fringe. They're being smeared. They're being threatened, you know, their livelihood, of course, but even their retirement, the way that they intended to help pay for their kids to go to college, all of that is out the window. So even as we ask why more haven't come forward, we've learned they are coming forward. Well over a dozen in the past year and a half or so have come forward and spoken to members of Congress. So far, no meaningful change in anything. Nothing these whistleblowers have tried to expose has led to anything of impact. And they're learning that if you voice your concern inside the agency about something that you think is unethical or even potentially illegal, you will be labeled as fringe. Your security clearance will be pulled. Your ability to earn a living will be threatened. This is so dangerous in my view when People see great wrongdoing or allege great wrongdoing inside a federal agency or organization, and there's really nothing they can do about it because they will be labeled as the one who is in the wrong. I used to think there would be some power or safety in numbers if enough people came forward, two, three, four, five, ten, fifteen. But as of now, that doesn't really look like it's the case. If you like these discussions, and I hope that's the case, you will want to check out my other podcast where we will continue this, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. We will talk more about some of the best stories from season eight, maybe some of my behind the scenes reflections on them. And my big announcement that I hope you're happy to hear is that we are coming back for season nine of Full Measure. Our season nine starts in the fall. We'll begin shooting new stories. I'm already doing my research for the new stories. We'll be going into a political election year, a lot of exciting coverage, interesting interviews, some of them exclusive. You won't want to miss it. And really, it's incredible at a time, as I like to say, when our information is being so managed 
that it becomes harder and harder to tell the truth or just tell the facts or tell various sides of a story. But we do that every week on Full Measure, and I'm very pleased we'll be allowed to do that for another season, season nine starting in the fall. Don't miss this week's Full Measure on Sunday. You can watch at a TV station near you. Go to CherylAxon.com and click the Full Measure tab for a full listing of stations and times. Or, hey, if it's easier, you can go to FullMeasure.news and watch at 9.30 Eastern Time Live, FullMeasure.news on Sunday, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Or if it's more convenient, you can watch online at your own leisure You don't have to watch the live stream. We post the segments and the entire program on Sundays by around noon Eastern time after it's aired on our TV stations. If you'd like to support independent journalism, check out the store at CherylAckeson.com. Click the store tab. I have some fantastic products with proceeds going to support independent journalism causes like the ION Awards to student journalists and professional journalists for independent and off-narrative reporting. You'll love some of the products and the slogans. Our most popular slogan right now is the one that says, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All my old ones came true. We also have products that say, do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.